0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and today I'll be talking healthcare with my usual partner in crime, Todd Campbell. Todd, how are you doing today?
1: I am doing well. Christine, you sound like you might have a little bit of a cold.
0: I know. I'm not really sure what this is. It is full-blown allergy season here in D.C., so I'm hoping it's allergies, but apologies to listeners because I know I don't sound great. <laughs>
1: Uh, hopefully you'll feel better soon.
0: Yeah, hope so. Fingers crossed. And also, I apologize in advance if I end up coughing or something during this episode. I'm gonna try really hard not to. I've got my water next to me, and we'll see how it goes.
1: Excellent. All right.
0: So today we are talking about just one topic, which I feel like is kind of unusual for our healthcare show. We usually like to pack a bunch of different things in, but we are focusing on the largest pharmaceutical company in the world, which is Johnson and Don- Johnson.
1: This company is so big that it almost feels like when you're, although we're covering one subject, we're really covering like eight subjects, right? I mean, this well, is. This
0: I mean, if we really want to make ourselves sound impressive, we are covering the 250 plus sub companies in the Johnson and Johnson family of companies.
1: Do we really have 250 sub companies? <laughs> yeah, more than that. It's that's extraordinary. I mean, this is a company obviously that's been around for an extremely long time. They've increased their dividend for 54 consecutive straight years. That tells you how long they've been in business and how long they've been generating out uh, returns that they can can return back to us, uh, to shareholders. And, you know, they just came out this past week. They reported their earnings for the first quarter. And I think by all measures, you know, it was a solid quarter. I mean, it wasn't a stunner. You know, it wasn't, like, incredibly exciting. Uh, But that's not why investors are interested in Johnson & Johnson anyway
0: exactly and there's a lot of stability with this company they as you mentioned have been around forever they've been around since 1886 in that time they've only had nine CEOs so this is a very reliable company it doesn't change quickly I mean it's pretty hard to make a boat that big pivot on a dime anyway but they constantly year in year out turn out pretty reliable results and because of that a lot of conservative dividend seeking investors are attracted to the stock which in general has performed really really well. When I was looking at earnings, I was actually a little bit surprised to see that the stock dropped about 3% yesterday in reaction to this earnings report. To me, there wasn't really a whole lot surprising in there. I mean, they're still on track for their own guidance that they laid out. And even though things weren't great, I think that's at least what I was expecting going in is that this is a company that is struggling a little bit to reignite growth. But looking at it broad picture, I'm not terribly worried for the long term
1: yeah, I think that the biggest you know to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, the biggest takeaway at the end of the game, end of the day will be that there is some some concerns over pricing power and uh, and some of their big drugs, top selling drugs uh, that may be weighing on on some investors' minds. But again, you're talking about a company that's going to grow, you know the top line two to four percent and the bottom line, you know, four to six percent. And you know if if you're looking for for a fast growth company, you're going to go somewhere else. You're going to look at a cell gene. But if you're looking for a steady eddy income producer, Johnson Johnson is a staple. it's a it's a core holding uh, in some of the largest, many of the largest portfolios uh, in, in America. And you know, I think that on balance, you know, they reported a dollar eighty three in in earnings for the first quarter. I mean, that's very solid. It was up five point eight percent year over year. that's that's pretty darn good.
0: That's seven and a half percent when you look at it constant currency.
1: Right. Although I, I, I always get a little antsy about trying to x out the effect of currency because the reality is it's a global company. They'll always be dealing with currency, sometimes headwinds, sometimes tailwinds. Uh, but yeah, from an operational perspective, it is help, it helpful to know. Okay, well, what it, what is behind the growth or or the deceleration? Um, you know, so dollar eighty three. I think a street was looking for uh, maybe six or seven cents less than that. So it was a beat. Um, there's a caveat there, though. The beat, a lot of that, at least half of it, came from a lower than expected tax rate. So I think investors shouldn't be looking at this and saying, okay, this is an indication that this year uh, things are really clicking and we're going to be able to deliver, you know, better than expected in, in each of the remaining quarters because they are forecast that tax rate will normalize over the course of the year. So $1.83 on sales of $17.8 billion. Uh, the sales were up 1.6% year over year again you're not talking about di- a dynamo of growth but this is a big solid steady eddy kind of company
0: exactly and so when we think about Johnson Johnson as a healthcare company i think it's easy to only think about it as a pharmaceutical company but they actually are composed of three major segments the first one is pharmaceutical but i think Let's just go ahead and save that one for last, since it still is probably the most important. But the first two that I think we should dive into are the consumer segment and then also the medical device segment. So the consumer segment, we'll start with that one. This is the uh, segment of Johnson & Johnson that produces things like Band-Aid and Tylenol, uh, the Johnsons baby products, all these brands that you see and you know and hopefully you love. And this is generally a pretty stable, flat sort of segment. It's not super high growth, it's not high margin. Overall it accounts for about 18% of total revenue. And it looks like it is hitting a little bit of a hiccup, especially when you look at it as a, a global uh, segment.
1: Yeah, this the, we saw the consumer segment deliver sales growth of 1% year-over-year, year, $3.2 billion in revenue. But if you back out acquisitions and stuff, the you know you had sales didn't make any headway they actually fell a little bit um, the reason that they cited for the weakness in consumer um, is that you know some companies were drawing down their inventory and obviously you know if if you're building up inventory you're buying more than you need and you're sitting in your warehouse then shipping it out that maybe that happened in the fourth quarter and now they're working through those inventories so that theoretically should be temporary. Um, You mentioned Tylenol. Tylenol was a bright spot for them. Uh, Over-the-counter medicine or the over-the-counter products, that's the biggest part of consumer, uh, and sales there grew 1.4% year over year. So, that business is stable and solid. Um, The acquisition tailwind that they did get uh, was in beauty. That beauty market was was fairly good for them. They saw sales rise 11.6%. Because of those acquisitions, um, but they also lost ground in oral, um, where you know they, they saw a six percent slide in oral, and also about a six percent slide in in, um, in the baby care products. So, you know, again, lots of puts and takes there. But like you said, the consumer is your cash cow. It's just steady. It's it's going to grow, not more than that plus one plus you know, plus one to minus one kind of range. Uh, so I don't think there are any real major surprises there.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, as usual, it's kind of a mixed bag of hey, you know, we had wound care that was down twelve percent, and we're going to have uh, some other segment, beauty, that's up a bunch. So overall, though, this segment is extremely stable. I mean, they're consumer staples. Everybody knows Acuvue contact lenses, and these are some of the biggest name brands that there are.
1: Yeah, so I think that you know in, investors going to realize okay, this is the consumer part's not going to be you know a huge source of. Of revenue or earnings growth, it's just a steady business. Maybe there's more of an opportunity in, you know, their medical device unit, for example.
0: Sure, let's talk about that one. So this one is 35% of total revenue. So starting to be a little bit more important on a, a cash basis to this company.
1: 6.3 billion dollars in sales for the quarter, uh, up 3% roughly year over year. Uh, you back out, deals and sales globally were up 1.7 percent, so faster, a little bit better than consumer, larger uh, percentage of of the total overall pie, if you will. They have a lot of different businesses, part of the 250, that are operating underneath um, uh, the medical device umbrella, if you will. They, they have exposure to cardiovascular, they have exposure to diabetes, and orthopedics, um, but not all of those businesses performed... Uh, you know equally you know you had some some winners like cardiovascular and you had some losers like diabetes
0: right so this is a business segment that is, very much managed by adding on small acquisitions and getting rid of low performers. You know, it, it's definitely a very like componentized part of the company. Um, they had a couple of interesting acquisitions in the first quarter. For example, they bought the uh, medical optics subsection of Abbott, um, which closed on February 27th. This was called Abbott Medical Optics, and so that kind of rounded out their eye health offering, particularly within the surgery category of vision care. And so That vision care segment was actually up the most of any segment within medical devices, and it now accounts for about 13% of medical devices. Um, Another acquisition that uh, Actually, I'll I'll call out two more. The first one is Megadyne Medical Products, and the other one is Torax Medical. Basically, the way that I I view this business here is that they're going to keep buying different products and and different companies that are profitable and can boost the, the places in which they already have a little bit of a footprint. And when you look at Johnson & Johnson's size, they have so much distribution power, they have so many relationships with different uh, providers of medical devices um, that they're really able to take these smaller companies and and leverage them and, and make them more valuable than they would have been as standalones.
1: I think you make a very good point Christine and that the way that they're managing this company is very opportunistically. They're looking at it and they're saying okay, where are we where have we, you know, delivered the the growth in these particular uh, uh, areas and can we sell those and then take that money and buy something else that is bolt on bolt-on and kind of, you know, kickstart growth and improve profitability that way. You know, they've they've got for example Um, uh, Some really good demand in cardiovascular, thanks to some of their uh, products that are used to treat atrial fibrillation, Uh, that, you know, treating AFib through um, uh, catheterization, uh, basically what they're doing, it's complicated, but what they're doing is, if you've got an irregular heartbeat, they'll put a catheter in to, you know, fix the part of the, the heart muscle that's sending off the wrong electrical signal. Anyways. There, more procedures are being done, and that's helping the cardiovascular sa- side of the world. They do have some question marks. You know, The, the orthopedic part of their business is the biggest part of um, of their medical device sales. So hips, knees, spine, and there's been some pricing pressure there. It's a highly competitive market. Um, it's, it's tied a little bit to the whims and whispers of what's going on with the economy, because it does require a lot of out-of-pocket uh, spending. And so that that business has got some question marks, and also there's some question marks associated with the diabetes franchise. They do where they make things like heart pump uh, insulin pumps, and um, they actually said in January they're thinking of you know looking at strategic options for that business. So perhaps by the end of the year they make a decision on what to do with it, either they partner it or they sell it off or or what whatever. So there are some changes that are going to be going on over the course of the year. Some things to watch within this basket, but again you know an important part, and it is growing.
0: And if you look at overall trends, you know, macro level, you, medical devices in general, you can probably expect that they're going to do pretty well as people get older, they live longer, they're going to need more of this type of surgery, for example, that the segment would address. So, turning yeah, larger
1: larger patient pool plays into pretty much all of Johnson and Johnson's product lines. So yeah, I mean, you talking true. about a 50-year, you know, mega cycle, if you will. Um, yeah, the longer living, larger larger global populations definitely plays into procedure volume, and that should be you know a net benefit or tailwind for the company.
0: Exactly. So the third and final segment of Johnson and Johnson, and the one that I think we would probably have the best time talking about, just because it's more along the lines of what we normally discuss, and that would be the pharmaceutical segment, which is called Janssen. And this one uh, grew, I believe it was two and some percent uh, operationally, anyway, in the first quarter. And uh, it's by far the the most important part of this company. It's about forty six percent of total revenue. I can absolutely see it becoming over fifty percent, maybe even within the next year.
1: Yeah, this is also a big driver of their profitability. You know, Just by making changes in how they do manufacturing and staying uh, pr- pretty tight-fisted when it comes to spending, um, and, and because of the way the mix broke out between biologics and small molecules, biologics usually a little bit more uh, margin-friendly, they were able to boost margins in their pharmaceutical unit by 4%, 400 basis points. That's pretty extraordinary and pretty good. Um, top line, like you saw on a reported basis, the growth really wasn't that Great. I mean, it was like up one percent. Uh, domestic sales were down slightly. International sales were up. Um, there were some puts and some some takes here as well. Some very strong performing drugs and some drugs maybe that investors should be keeping an eye on to see whether or not they find some footing or see whether or not sales continue to decline.
0: One drug that I know we've called out a bunch in the past is Remicade, which is one of their key drugs. It's an anti-inflammatory. This is a drug that. Everybody has been watching because of the threat of biosimilar competition. Quick reminder biosimilars are basically like generic ish versions of very complicated drugs that you can't make what technically would be called a generic for. So um, Merck is partnered on this drug, and when you look abroad, you see this biosimilar called Inflectra being priced at about a 15% discount to uh, Remicade. And it's a little bit concerning as an investor to say, okay, well, is this going to start affecting remicade sales in the United States as well? Management, yeah,
1: remicade huge, right? I mean, we're talking about one point almost one point seven billion dollars just from this one drug alone last quarter. Yeah, this
0: one's super important. But it looks like maybe we don't quite have to worry about that as much, at least not yet. Management has commented that they're not seeing much impact from a remicade biosimilar just yet.
1: I think what's you know, I think we could probably kill a whole episode talking about Remicade and the whole movement towards biosimilars. You know, in Europe overseas, they have a much more established biosimilar market. Um, as a result, you know, Remicade uh, export volume from Johnson Johnson is falling much uh, more quickly than, say, that the threat is here in the United States, where it's just basically an emerging. Market for these biosimilars. So, you know, overall Remicade sales fell 6%, as I mentioned, to 1.67 billion. US sales were down 2.4% to 1.18 billion. And that was following the launch of Inflectra. um, You know, this was the first full quarter of it, Q1. And I think what people have to say is okay, well, Why were sales down if they said that they don't really see much of an impact? What they were saying is we don't see much of an impact in prescription volume and market share. Mm -hmm. But they did say that they are seeing an impact in pricing. So my view is that they said, okay, you launched that biosimilar with only a 15% discount. Guess what? This is a margin-friendly drug for us. We can match that price. So, we're going to maintain our market share until you get to a point where we don't want to match it anymore. Exactly. So, that might be a very big struggle for biosimilar manufacturers in the United States, where you've got these very high-priced drugs with, theoretically, a lot of room for the manufacturer to be able to uh, compete more aggressively uh, uh, with the biosimilars when they first roll out.
0: Right, especially when you consider that a doctor looking at your original drug versus the biosimilar version, I think there's a healthy amount of skepticism there amongst a lot of prescribers in that they'll be hesitant to switch patients from, or even start new patients on the biosimilar when they're used to the original brand name drug. And so at Yeah, that it's going to come if, down to
1: cost, yeah, right, if, if whether if the, pricing the payers is, make them. Mm-hmm,
0: if the pricing is minimal, then I, I don't see payers pushing for that, I don't see doctors pushing for it, but as right. as you mentioned, it's a pretty nascent market.
1: Yeah, and I feel like when you look back at the regular generic market as it started to grow in the 90s, there was a lot of hesitancy about that. And of course, now we all know that the majority of prescriptions written are for generics. So I think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity here. And, you know, Remicade's going to face headwinds for a long time. It's just that, you know, maybe the, the headwinds aren't as strong initially as was feared. That's something to keep in mind. On the plus side of the common, though, they did have some standout drugs, Darzelex for use in multiple myeloma. Uh, is now on a billion-dollar blockbuster pace after winning uh, approval at the end of um, 2016 for use in the second-line setting. Imbrovica, which is a drug that they share with AbbVie, is also uh, growing very, very strong. They've up sales, or their share of that was $409 million, up 57% in the quarter, year-over-year.
0: Right, and One other standout to me in the pharmaceutical segment, something to keep an eye on, is this acquisition of Actelion, which was a company that uh, Johnson & Johnson purchased for $30 billion, which if that sounds like a lot, it is. Um, they originally offered $26 billion and Actelion said no. They tried $27 billion, still got a no. At one point, Fe was in there trying to negotiate and buy Actelion. They failed. Johnson & Johnson eventually nabs up this maker of. Uh, spe- very specific lung disease drugs. Um, I'm just going to go with the acronym, but PAH is uh, the indication for the, the drugs that they make. Um, they also they have a couple of potential blockbusters. They have a pipeline, but interestingly, in this acquisition, the R&D unit is going to be spun off and traded independently on the Swiss stock market. Johnson & Johnson will only own 16% of that company, and they'll have the rights to buying another 16%. But I, I think that this deal has been met with a lot of skepticism, just because of the price tag and also this decision where you're not really going to get as much of the upside from the pipeline that this company has. So a lot of question marks surrounding that. Uh, the this was one of the very first things that was addressed in the conference call this quarter uh, because they're expecting the deal to close by the end of Q two, and they actually updated their guidance for the year to reflect bringing Actelion in. And it looks like the expected boost to revenue will be one point three billion dollars this year. And I'll remind you this was for a thirty billion dollars acquisition.
1: It's it's an absolutely uh, massive deal, and um, it, it, they paid through the nose for it, right? Uh, but you have to look at it from Johnson & Johnson's perspective. They have a ton of cash locked overseas that they can't bring back, bring back to the U.S. without having to be taxed on it, right? So it's just yeah, sitting Yeah, barring,
0: barring some potential theoretical tax holiday, which has been discussed, but of course there's no guarantees there.
1: Right. So you look at it and you say, well, I've got a chance to buy a company, Actilion, with the cash that I've got locked up overseas, and a cash deal, so I'm not taking on debt. The cost is very low to me to do that. So I'm buying a company that is not only got drugs that are on the market that are leaders in their space that are racking up, you know, a blockbuster number for me, but they're profitable. These are profitable drugs. You know, was making money. So they're looking at it and they're saying we can do this deal at this price and still see a tailwind to our earnings in the first full year after completion of 35 cents, we'll call it, somewhere in there, 30 to 40 cent range, something like that. So 2018, you get that nice little tailwind despite the actual cost. So it's an expensive deal, but it's still a profit-friendly deal for them. Um, You know, and the argument is, across some of these large companies, if you don't have growth, if you are a big, huge company, we've talked about this a lot with Gilead too, right? Um, And Pfizer's another one. You know, you have to deploy that money. Uh, to to buy some buy some growth. And and that's what they did. And you know, I don't fault them for that. And it could it could end up being a win. I mean, especially if the uh, their stake in that spin-off pays off over time.
0: Yeah, if Gilead Sciences is any indication the market does not like companies to just sit on cash. I personally think that's a rather short term way of looking at it, but eh, <laughs> we'll see if the Sakellian's deal pays off.
1: Well, the return on cash isn't very high, is it, though, Christine? So, I mean, you yeah. have to look at it yes. too from a, is from a shareholder perspective. Are you doing what's going to get me the biggest return as a shareholder yeah, with it, the money that you're not giving me in the form of either you know, dividends or buybacks?
0: Yeah, I think that the the uh, tax point that you make with Octillion is actually very spot on. This is a company that's headquartered in Switzerland. They've already paid the foreign taxes on that money, so hey, now they don't need to pay the repatriation taxes on $30 billion, which is substantial. Anyway, you mentioned the dividend, and that is definitely the next thing that I want to talk about, because that is one huge reason why people buy this stock. Right now, they're paying out at about a payout ratio of two and a half percent. They're a dividend aristocrat. They've been paying. They've been increasing their dividend for 54 years, or 54, 55, whatever it is. It's a pretty incredible amount. They're probably going to raise it again in the next two weeks, probably in the high single-digit range boost to this this payout that they've been paying their shareholders year in and year out for a long time.
1: Yeah, their payout ratio is only 53%, which is not very, I mean, a few years ago it was 70%. So, they've got room, and they've got flexibility, and they've got plenty of cash flow coming in. So, there's this is one of those companies that people, again, we to go back and come full circle on the conversation. You know, if you're looking for growth, you're probably not going to be excited by this company. But if you're looking for a company that is going to, develop, to be a steady eddy performer and give you some uh, a, a nice dividend every year, then yes, this is a core holding. It's not necessarily a cheap dividend stock. Uh, you know, if you look historically over the past 10 years, it's trading at the higher end of its trailing P, um, not the lower end. But at the same time, you know, when you look, talk about a company like J and J, you're not really talking about timing it based on valuation. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. It's kind of typically always trade for a premium. And By the way, thank you for correcting me earlier. I I said payout ratio of 2.5%. It meant dividend yield. Payout ratio, as you noted, is in the mid-50s, and that's on both an earnings basis and a cash flow basis. But yeah, I mean, this is, as as we've said probably a million times already in this episode, it's a reliable company. It's one of just two companies to have a AAA rating from Standard & Poor's. That's better than the U.S. government. They still have a ton of cash on the balance sheet. They have some debt, but again, AAA-rated balance sheet. This is a strong company. No, nothing to worry about here.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, the only I'm going to caveat that a little bit, Christine, just to wrap up here, because you know there are some things that investors are going to have to want to watch. I mean, I have faith that Johnson and Johnson can navigate these struggles, but Remicade is still a question mark because it accounts for a large percentage of their sales. So you're going to have to watch and see how that plays out in script trends over the course of the next year. I also saw a drop off in uh, revenue for Zytiga, which is an important prostate cancer drug. Zoralto, which is an important blood uh, anticoagulant, so we're going to want to watch those trends too because those are those are two billion a year uh, sales drugs, and we want to know whether or not they're going to find footing or if this price or competition is going to continue to put those sales at risk. So there are some things that we're gonna, you know investors will want to watch, but generally speaking, yeah,
0: yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, but personally, I'm a shareholder. I am happy to be a shareholder. I would be happy to buy more at prices today if I had room in my portfolio for that, but you know, it's not the right decision for me to overload even more in healthcare right now. But honestly, I think I will be holding this company for a very long time. And when I look back, I'm, when I'm getting towards retirement and I look back and I say, Hey, I bought this company in my early twenties, I think I'll be okay with that decision.
1: Yeah, it's kinda of like one of those stocks where you look at each sector and you say, Well, what's the one that I want to own it's like owning Exxon if you're investing in energy stocks, yeah,
0: right? Yeah, it's just a classic. And so, hopefully, this episode uh, has helped our listeners kind of uh, sink their teeth in a little bit more to both earnings and just in general what goes on with this goliath of a company. Todd, thanks so much for dissecting it with me today. Happy to be here. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening and bearing with my voice today. And Fool on.